The reading comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This is the word of God. Well, as I mentioned, my name is Adam. I'm part of the team here, and it's great to have you with us. It's great to be able to see a whole lot more people in the building. It's also wonderful to have those of you who are joining us online, and we hope that you'll be able to join us here one day soon. Now, before we uh, dive in this morning, let me just say a quick thank you for all of your messages and all of your support in the last couple of weeks. If you haven't heard, my wife Molly and I had our third child uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, thank you, thank you. A little boy named Jude, and uh, he's going really well. He's eating, sleeping, pooping, doing everything that a baby should But we are now officially outnumbered. There's three of them. So you can pray for us. (laughs) Today we come to the the final week of our series that we've been in for the last little while called How to Pray, a simple guide for normal people. What we've been doing for the last six weeks is we've been looking at the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, the prayer that's become known as the Lord's Prayer. What we've discovered about this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray is that it's short. You can pray it in 20 seconds or less. It's also simple. It's for normal people like you and me. And it's a guide. It's a pattern. It's a framework for our prayers. Now, the reason that we've done this series is not just for all of us to learn about prayer, but that we might be encouraged to pray. Because when Jesus taught us to pray, he didn't teach us something that was long, complicated, and complex. He gave us something that was short, simple, and meaningful. And we can all learn to pray this prayer. We can all put it into practice. In fact, I hope that's what you've been able to do. I hope that you've been able to 
incorporate the Lord's Prayer into your prayer life through these last few weeks. Now today, we come to the final line of the prayer. We've been working our way through it line by line, and and what we've seen so far is that the first half of the prayer is all about God. It's about who God is. God is our Father. It's about God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. It's all about God. But then the second half of the prayer is about us and our needs. We are to pray for God's provision, our daily bread. We are to pray for God's pardon, forgive us our debts. And today we see that we are also to pray for God's protection. Jesus instructs us to pray in the final line of the prayer. He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, we've got to be honest, this seems like an odd way to end the prayer, doesn't it? It seems a little bit abrupt and a little bit alarming. I think this might be why uh, the traditional ending was added. Yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I can imagine the early church leaders thinking, yeah, we need to round this off a little bit. We've got to land the plane here. I mean, it seems like Jesus has just left it hanging. But funnily enough, Jesus knows what he's talking about. Imagine that. You see, Jesus ends the prayer in this way because he knows that we're not living in peacetime. We're living in the midst of a war. We're in a battle engaged with evil spiritual forces. This is what the Bible tells us again and again. This is what we heard, for example, in Ephesians 6, that passage that we just read from the New Testament where the Apostle Paul says we are engaged in a struggle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, I wonder what you think about this. Now, it's my guess that most of us got out of bed this morning and we weren't thinking about this great spiritual struggle against evil forces. It's my guess that most mornings we get out of bed not thinking about this conflict. I mean, we've got hundreds of other things to think about and to do. The battle with invisible evil spiritual forces doesn't really rank highly on our to-do list. You know, when the Bible talks about evil spiritual forces, Satan, demons, and, and so forth, it actually, I think it's a little bit like when the safety, well, uh, safety explanation is given on an aeroplane flight. You know, when the air steward stands up and puts the life vest on and points to the exits... Now, I don't know about you, but when that happens, I tune out. I tend to put my headphones in, start to read my book. I don't really pay attention. I know there's a remote chance that the plane might crash, but I tend to assume it's not going to happen on this flight. So I don't really pay attention. Now, I think that this is how some of us relate to the Bible's instructions around evil spiritual forces. We're aware of them. We're just not that concerned or interested. We assume it doesn't really have much to do with us. Now, at one level, this isn't a totally bad thing because the fact is we shouldn't wake up every morning thinking about evil spiritual forces. If we do wake up every morning thinking about Satan and demons and so forth, it probably reveals that something's out of balance. We shouldn't be obsessed with the devil. We should be focused on Jesus. That's where our focus and our attention should be, but at the same time, 
We shouldn't be ignorant. I mean, the Apostle Paul said about Satan in 2 Corinthians, he says, we are not unaware of his schemes. So we shouldn't be obsessed, but we also shouldn't be unaware. And this is why Jesus concludes the Lord's Prayer with this line. He wants us to know, be aware of the dangers that we face in this world. He wants us to be able to stand firm in the face of them in this world. I mean, did you notice how many times the word stand appeared in that reading from Ephesians 6? Jesus wants us to be able to stand firm. And if we are going to stand firm, we need to be reminded of and be aware of this important truth. Now, if you're not a Christian with us this morning, if you're not convinced about the reliability of the Bible, we're so glad that you're with us. Now, I'm aware that that talk of Satan and demons might make you a little bit skeptical. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to so many in our day. It sounds a little bit cartoonish. And this is largely because in our day, we've replaced the idea of good and evil with psychology and sociology. We attribute sin or evil to societal or clinical causes, which of course play a contributing factor and which we should not minimize or sideline as Christians, but they don't tell the whole story. You know, there's a a fascinating scene in the movie, The Silence of the Lambs. Clarice Starling is a young FBI trainee, and she's interviewing Hannibal Lecter, who's a a cannibal and a serial killer. And she asks, asks him, what happened to him to make him so twisted? Hannibal replies, and he says, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. Nothing is ever anyone's fault. Look at me. Can you stand to say, I'm evil? For all of our sophistication, for all of our scientific advancements, we find it difficult to acknowledge the reality of evil. We find it hard to understand the existence of evil. And yet, if we will open our eyes, we'll see that it's all around us. I mean, just look at history. Just turn on the news. Just scroll through your Facebook feed. Genocide, drug cartels, lynch mobs, nuclear bombs, domestic violence, child abuse, poverty, slavery, racism, on and on we could go. Our world is ravaged by evil. And I think the person who denies the existence of the devil, a personal evil spiritual force, I think the person who denies the reality of evil spiritual forces, they have a hard time to explain why our world is the way it is. I mean, why are we able to create incredible technologies? Why are we able to cure diseases? And yet we cannot control the own sinful impulses of our hearts. Why can we communicate instantly with other people on the other side of the world, even in space, and yet at times struggle to have a meaningful conversation around the dinner table? Why have we been able to send a man to the moon, but we still have hell on earth? Why? Let's make it more personal for a moment. Why do we as individuals tell lies? Why do we cheat, steal, envy, mock, manipulate? Why do we become proud and selfish? Why do we gossip and slander? 
Why do we post horrible comments on social media? Or why do we think about posting horrible comments on social media? Why? The answer of the Bible is, is simple but profound. So we were created in the image of God. We were created with great capacity for good. But we have rebelled against God. We have rejected God. We have turned from God. And there is now a fracture in the relationship between God and his creation. There is a rip in the fabric of the universe and there is great evil at work in the world. This is why the final petition of the Lord's Prayer is so important. This is why you and I need to learn to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now the question is, what does that mean? What are we actually asking for when we pray this petition? Because on the surface, if you're paying attention, it sounds a little bit strange. Lead us not into temptation. I mean, the question is, does God lead us into temptation? Does God tempt us? Does God put stumbling blocks in our way? Now, if we're learning to do what we should do, which is to let the Bible interpret the Bible, then we know the answer is no. Because we know in another part of the Bible, in James chapter 1, verse 13, we read, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So the Bible is clear, God does not tempt us. God does not incite or induce us to do evil. But if God does not tempt us, why should we pray, lead us not into temptation? Well, the answer lies in, in that word, temptation. It's actually a, a Greek word that can be translated a couple of ways. It can be translated temptation, as it is, but it can also be translated as test or trial. Now, God doesn't lead us into temptation. He doesn't incite or induce us to do evil, but God does test us. He does sometimes test our faith, not to destroy us, but to strengthen us. Augustine says, the great church father, God uses tests to improve us and to prove us. Now, I do something similar with my three-year-old son. You know, there'll be things that he won't want to do. For example, walk across the scary rope bridge at the park. But I will gently encourage and coax him to do it. Not because I want him to fall off and hurt himself, but because I want him to know that he can do it. I want him to overcome his fear. I want him to trust me that I won't let him fall. And you see, it's the same in our spiritual lives. The tests that we go through, though they're difficult and hard, though we might not want them, ask for them, or enjoy them, they can actually serve a good purpose in our lives. They can deepen our trust in God and they can reveal to us how much we've grown in our faith. God uses tests and trials to strengthen us. But here's what we also need to understand. Is that we have an enemy who also wants to use our trials and our tests. But he wants to not to strengthen us, not to improve us, not to prove us. He wants to drag us down and destroy us. He wants to take us out. This is why Jesus prays in the second half of the petition, or instructs us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Now this is obviously a, a reference to Satan. 
Now, the Bible doesn't give us too much details about the origins of this mysterious figure. But it does tell us enough to know that his ultimate goal is to deface what God has made, to oppose what God is doing, and to destroy the people whom God loves, at least as much as he is able to. You see, Satan, despite what the Simpsons will tell you, is not a cute character with a pitchfork that looks a bit like Ned Flanders. Satan is a liar, a murderer, an accuser. And he wants to devour you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so God wants to build us up and Satan wants to bring us down. God uses tests to strengthen our faith and Satan attempts to turn those tests into traps. He attempts to use them for our harm. And, you know, we see a number of different examples of this in the Bible. For example, the tree in the midst of the Garden of Eden. God placed it there to test Adam and Eve. But it was used by Satan to trap them, to turn them away from God. Jesus going into the wilderness in his own ministry. We're told in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. God uses tests to deepen our faith, but Satan tempts us to destroy our faith. And this helps us to understand what we mean when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Because what we're saying is, Lord, don't let my tests become traps. Don't let me be overcome by times of trial and temptation. Don't let me be devoured by them. Protect me, shield me, strengthen me, deliver me from evil. Don't let my tests become traps. And Jesus taught us to pray this way because in this world, he knows we will be put to the test. We will face temptation. That passage we read from James earlier, it did not say if you are tempted. It said when you are tempted. We will face temptation. We will be tempted to turn away from God, to doubt the goodness of God. And this testing, it will come in all different kinds of form. It might be, which is a common one, pain and suffering. You know, when life becomes hard and painful... We can be tempted to believe that God has turned his back on us. And we can be tempted to turn our back on him. This was the temptation of Job in the Old Testament, wasn't it? God allowed Satan to test Job, and he did so by inflicting incredible suffering on him. He lost his kids, his home, his livelihood. And yet Job's confession in the midst of the suffering, the Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Sometimes the test will be trials and pain and difficulty. Other times, the test will be prosperity. I mean, you might be blessed materially. A nice income, a good house, a comfortable life. And you can respond by giving thanks to God and being generous to others. Or you can respond by forgetting about God by becoming puffed up, by, by thinking you deserve what you have, by looking down on other people, by not sharing with other people. This was the test for the young man, the young rich man that came to Jesus in Matthew 19. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? 
said, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now, the young rich man couldn't do it. He walked away sad because he had great wealth, the Bible says. These tests and trials and temptations will come in many different forms. And often they won't be as obvious. It's not always going to be the big things. In fact, it often won't be. It it will usually be the small things. Often our temptations come in the form of small choices that we make every day that can and will eventually have big consequences. Here's the way how one person puts it. They say, a farmer never notices the corn growing minute by minute. But if he stays in the field long enough, He wakes up one day to discover that it has grown over his head. And we might wake up one day to realize that the seemingly small decisions we make to give in to seemingly small temptations, they have had big consequences. And the corn has grown over our heads. And this is why you and I need to learn to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, I wonder if this sounds a little bit scary and intimidating to you. It should, at least to some degree, because we face a formidable enemy and we face almost constant temptation, which we are unable to overcome on our own. I mean, if you've ever tried to overcome temptation on your own, if you've ever tried to use your own willpower and your own strength, you've realized how weak-willed we can be. I mean, I bet you've said to yourself at some point, I won't do it again. God, I promise, this is the last time. How many times have you kept that promise or broken that promise? And the reason I bring it up is because I've done exactly the same thing myself. The fact is, we are unable to face temptation alone. We are vulnerable in the face of temptation. And it's for many different reasons. Partly, it's because we like temptation. I mean, it wouldn't be temptation if it wasn't attractive to us. Sometimes Satan doesn't even have to tempt us. We go looking for temptation ourselves. We can be a little bit like the man that was driving home from work, and he knew that there was a bakery up ahead, and he said to himself, well, if there's a car space at that bakery, I'll know it's a sign from God that I can stop and I can get myself a donut. And funnily enough, the tenth time that he drove past the bakery, a car space opened up. Sometimes we go looking for temptation. Oftentimes, we overestimate our ability to handle temptation. We tend to think we can handle more than we really can, and it ends up putting us in compromising situations. We justify what we know is wrong. We excuse what we know we shouldn't. In fact, one of the biggest dangers we face when it comes to temptation, it's our own presumption. It's our own deluded belief that we are secure. That we're, we would never fall. If you've ever thought to yourself, I would never do that. That could never happen to me. Be very, very careful. The Apostle Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10. He said, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. As Scott Sauls, a pastor in the States, puts it, he says, if Abraham, 
the father of all who have faith could offer his wife up twice to be sexually used by unsavory men in order to save his own hide, aren't we also capable of protecting ourselves at the expense of others? If Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, could for many years live a lie concerning his birthright, aren't we also capable of becoming liars? If Rahab, who is listed as an ancestor of Jesus, gave up her body as a prostitute, aren't we also capable of immoral thoughts and behaviours? If Peter, one of the 12 apostles and writer of two New Testament letters, the man who wrote that our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, if Peter could fall into xenophobic, exclusive behaviour after Jesus had restored him to ministry, aren't we also capable of excluding those whom Jesus embraces? If King David who gave us beautiful worship poetry in the Psalms and who was identified by the Lord as a man after God's own heart, could abuse his power by forcing Bathsheba, the daughter of one of his most loyal friends, to sleep with him and then scheming to have her husband, also a loyal friend, killed to cover it up. Aren't we also capable of abusing our power to get from others whatever we want? The moment you think that you're not vulnerable or susceptible to sin or temptation, it's the moment you are most vulnerable to sin and temptation. We are unable to overcome temptation on our own. But this is why the petition of the Lord's Prayer, the final petition, is such good news. Because it turns our attention away from our strength to the strength of another. I mean, Jesus does not teach us to pray, Lord, give us willpower and strength and resolve to overcome temptation and defeat the devil. He teaches us to pray, Lord, lead us and deliver us. This is not a prayer for assistance. This is a prayer for rescue, for salvation, for deliverance. And the good news is that this is exactly what God has done for us through the cross of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, when Jesus went to the cross, when he died on that cross, he did it for you and me. He did it to pay the penalty of our sin and evil. He did it to, to cover those times when we have given in to temptation. The punishment that was laid upon him brought us peace. And he also did it to defeat and disarm the devil. You see, the devil uses many different weapons to try and get to us. He Lies, he deceives, he seduces, he torments, but his main weapon is accusation. He loves to accuse us of our guilt and our wrongdoing. In fact, that's what the word Satan means. It's not his name, it's a title. It means the adversary, the accuser. And the devil loves to accuse us of our guilt before God. You've done it again. You're a failure. You don't measure up. God doesn't love you. God doesn't want anything to do with you. I wonder if that sounds familiar. But do you see that because of the cross, because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin and evil, because Jesus dealt with our guilt and shame, we now have an answer to those accusations. We can wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we can say, hey, devil, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 verse 1. God made him who had no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5 21. 
We can say, hey, devil, I see what you're trying to do, and I'm not buying it. Stop accusing me. Stop lying to me. I'm in Christ. I'm seated in him. I'm clothed in his righteousness. I belong to him. I'm a bit of a mess, but I'm his mess. Get lost. Martin Luther said the same thing, the great reformer. He said, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, I shall be also. See, Jesus is not a self-help guru. Jesus is a saviour. And he's really good at it. And this is what God wants from us. He wants us to stand firm in Christ. He wants us to rest in his finished work. He wants us to fight not with our own strength and willpower. It's like trying to put out the sun with a water pistol. He wants us to stand in the victory that he has achieved for us. He wants us to put on the armor that he provides. The armor that we read about in Ephesians 6. Now, I don't know if you noticed this when we read it, but the armor is shockingly ordinary. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. None of these things are particularly complicated. None of these things are complicated, sophisticated strategies of spiritual warfare. They're the basics of the gospel. They're what Christ has done for us. That when we put our faith in him, we receive his righteousness. We stand before God forgiven and accepted. We know the truth about God and about ourselves, and we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. God has given us everything we need to stand firm in this spiritual struggle. Doesn't mean we're not going to stumble and fall. We will. We're a work in progress. We're a bit of a mess, but we belong to Jesus. We're His mess, and He's not finished with us. He will help us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. We belong to him. You know, when Martin Luther was asked how he overcame the devil, this is what he said, and I want to close with this. He replied, well, when he comes knocking upon the door of my heart and he asks, who lives here? The dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he has moved out. Now I live here. And the scarred hands of the Lord Jesus send him scurrying away. So who do you belong to? Who answers when the devil comes knocking at the door of your heart? We're his. We belong to him. We can stand firm. So we've come to the end of our series in the Lord's Prayer. I hope it's blessed you as much as it's blessed me. And, and what we're going to do to close is we're going to stand together and we are going to recite and pray the Lord's Prayer together as the redeemed people of God. The words will be on the screen, so can I invite you to stand as we pray this prayer together, a declaration of our faith and what Jesus has done for you and for me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen.